And so, Holy Father, we have come to do just that, to embrace the cross. Forgive us. We thought it was nothing more than a dusty piece of wood. The treasure chest of heaven. Oh God, let us embrace the cross through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. If we can accept this premise as true, the premise, if we can accept it as true, then based on this premise, we must conclude that the most humble person who has ever lived is God Himself. We'll take a look at the premise in just a moment, but let me first share with you uh, a column written by the syndicated columnist George Will, his last column in Newsweek magazine. He's ruminating over what he calls the year's most pertinent and sobering public affairs book. He's talking about Gene Healy's book, The Cult of the Presidency, America's Devotion to Executive Power. Now, Healy's book explores our penchant as a nation for, quote, redemption through presidential politics. In other words, we have a tendency as Americans to elevate the presidency to almost messianic status. Healy calls it Caesaropapism. We combine the rule of, of Caesar and the Pope in the American president. Now, George Will writes, and I'll quote Will here, an occupational hazard of the inflated presidency is a hazard for the nation as well. It is what Healy, borrowing a term from psychiatry, calls acquired situational narcissism. Acquired means you don't have it normally. It comes to you. Situation, situational means it comes to you in a certain situation. And narcissism, of course, is self-worship. As repositories of absurd expectations and surrounded by psychophants, that would be those who flatter you, presidents become deranged. Now, isn't that something? Will's point. Something happens to the man when he's in office. Acquired, situational narcissism. When the power of the office deranges and deludes the occupant. Just like King Saul last week. Just like Absalom two weeks ago. And what about God? It almost... The very notion is sacrilegious, it feels, to suggest that somehow he's been so long in that office, he's been affected. If we accept the premise is true, and we'll note the premise right now, if this premise is true, then we must conclude that the most humble person in the universe is God himself. Now, here's the premise. The very antithesis of acquired situational narcissism. If this premise is true, what do you think? Here it is. Jesus is the most perfect depiction and faithful reflection of God we shall ever know in this life. True or false? Huh? But of course, he asserts the premise over and over and over again, doesn't he? There in the upper room, John 14, verse 9, put it on the screen for you. What did Jesus say? Whoever has seen me has seen who? 
You've seen me, you've seen the Father. John chapter 10, verse 30. I and the Father are one. Back to the upper room, John 14, verse 7. If you really knew me, you would know my Father as well. And from now on, you do know him and you have seen him. And oh my, what have they seen tonight in the upper room? They have seen the man, capital M, man, stripped to the waist, bearing a towel and a basin of water. And stooping, get this, stooping at the dirty feet of his ASN infected disciples. ASN, acquired situational narcissism. The psychiatric condition of the mind whereby a sense of power, whether it is real or delusional, deranges the individual to the place he no longer accepts his humble status in life as real. So that in that upper room, you got 12 men who are absolutely certain they're not going to be the ones to lower themselves. Not even John Boy, with whom we began this series a few weeks ago, not even John Boy will stoop down to wash anyone's feet. No way, Jose. The only one who's willing to go lower than the 12 is the master who squats at 12 pairs of stinking feet. Who made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a slave and humbled himself. How did Jesus put it once? The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. George Bush, last week, if you're following the news, you know that he was in Europe. In fact, a week ago yesterday, he had an audience with Pope Benedict XVI. I didn't learn about this till Wednesday night at House of Prayer when somebody told me, hey, go check the web. The buzz in Europe. Did you know that the wire services were a buzz, are a buzz, with the notion that President Bush is about to convert to Roman Catholicism? In Europe, the word on the street is, like his good friend Tony Blair, who after he left office as Prime Minister of Great Britain, converted to Catholicism and announced it to the world in December. Even so, President Bush will leave the Methodist Church and do the same. So, given the buzz on the street, the press, the press oh my, they were hanging on every ooh and ah in this papal audience. Will there be a clue? Will the president indicate this is where he's going? And true to form, the Pope, obviously, as a grateful payback for the imperial welcome he received in the White House back in April, the Pope breaks protocol and precedent and takes the president on a personal stroll through the private Vatican gardens. Karen and I were looking on those gardens just about five weeks ago. Beautiful gardens. And so the press watched. Now, what would have happened as the cameras were trained on the Pope and the president? What would have happened if the Pope had stripped down to his waist, kneeled over, and washed the feet of George and Laura Bush, taking off that white cassock. You know what? It is so bizarre, you can't even think of it. I mean, please. It's crazy. Why? Because power and prestige have their place. And the greater never bows to the lesser. And yet when the supreme monarch of the universe strips to his waist 
And he squats down and he personally bathes the feet of the men who should have been lining up one after my turn next. I'll wash yours next. My turn, my turn, my turn. They didn't line up, but they should have. And let me hit the pause button right here. Do you know what? Our problem is, here's our problem. We have been to this story in John 13, that scene so many times, that it moves our souls not a whit anymore. <laughs> but of course, I mean, come on, divine love. What do you expect divine love to do? Next, come on, guys, get your feet washed by Jesus. We only think that way because of our sin-darkened imagination that cannot possibly comprehend the resplendent glory that once belonged to the man squatting in front of our dirty feet. That's why we think that way. You want to know who this man is? I'm reading a commentary through right now in the book of Revelation. There's a scene at the end of the apocalypse that it might be well for us to just take a peek at. Go to the end of the Bible, the book of Revelation. Go ahead and look at it in your own Bible. Grab the Pew Bible if you didn't bring one. It's the last book of the Bible. You won't have any problem finding it. Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20. Dramatic reminder of this squatting monarch's rightful elevation. Take a look at this. Oh, I want to be there on that day. And I want to tell you something. There's only one place I want to be on that day. I want to be very close to where this moment takes place. I don't want to be outside. The moment, it's called the great white throne judgment. You know, when Justin and Justin and their singers were leading us this morning. And we sang about worthy is the Lamb high and lifted up. I already knew this was coming. And I tell you what, my heart just swept into that moment. What will it be like when He is lifted higher and higher, that great white throne above the human race? Ladies and gentlemen, we have with our Spielberg-jaded imaginations not an iota of ability to grasp this picture. Look at it. Revelation 20. What is this? Verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne and Him who sat on it from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away. And there was found no place for them. The sky tried to run. The sky tried to run and couldn't find a place to go. The earth tried to run and it could not go. They found no place to hide. What's going on here? Verse 12. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God. And the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the book. Now, having read that, I want to share with you what feels like an eyewitness account. All right? This is from a book called Great Controversy. I'll put the words on the screen so that you can see them as well. Far above the city, upon a foundation of burnished gold. All right, foundation of burnished gold is a white throne, high and lifted up. We sang that a moment ago, high and lifted up. That throne is going higher and higher and higher. And, watch this, upon this throne sits the Son of God, and around Him are the subjects of His kingdom. Oh, I want to be in that circle around Him. The power and majesty of Christ, now get this, no language can describe, no pen portray, the glory of the Eternal Father is is enshrouding His Son, the brightness of His presence fills the city of God and flows out beyond the gates, flooding the earth with its radiance. You cannot imagine the glory, the resplendent glory of that moment. That, that, right there, is who was washing the feet Thursday night in the upper room. That potentate. Not a lowly president, not a lowly pope, but the supreme potentate of the universe. 
That's who was washing the feet in the upper room. Once upon a time, according to the story, that supreme ruler stood up, stripped himself, stepped down from the throne. And when I say down, I mean down, 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 all the way down. Until he finally emerges from some obscure peasant girl's womb in a backyard cave and is born into this race. Why was he born? So that 30 odd years later on that hot and foreboding night, he might humble himself even further and stoop down and squat before us and wash our feet. You know what? The only humiliation that would have been more humiliating and humbling would have been to strip him naked and nail him to a tree and hang him in front of a gaping world. How did Jesus put it? If you have seen me, you've seen the Father. For the Father and I are like this. We are one. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. But that's the problem. We really don't know him, do we? Don't know the Father. Not this God whom Philip Yancey describes as being shy. Have you ever thought of God as shy? The shy God. Have you ever thought of God as being humble? I'll be honest with you. I, have not, I had not thought about God being humble. I somehow, you know, humble is for everybody else, but not for God. Please, you're God. And then a friend of mine gave me a paper. He was a classmate in college. His name is Fred Bishop. He's a physician turned theologian. And in this paper... He explores the leadership paradigm we see amongst the Trinity. Let me run this by you. This is fascinating. The lead, look, what is leadership like among the top leaders in the universe? These are the three highest, all right? The Trinity. Where you have the Father, the perfect leader, displaying his humility, his leadership through humility. You know how he does it? He does it by his humble service to the entire creation. If you are alive, he's serving you right now. You are alive this moment because the Father's serving you. You can say, let him go. Let him go. He serves his entire creation. Then you have the son, the perfect follower, displaying his leadership through his humility, humbly submitting himself to his father, the leader. The, the son can say, hey, I'm number one here. No, I submit to you. I submit humbly. And then you have the third person of the Godhead, the great enabler. This being is so humble, he will never be seen in the history of the universe. To be admired. Never seen. You have this round robin circular humility amongst the Trinity. A humility that climaxes not in that great white throne, but on that old rugged cross. That's the humility. Climax. End with me in Philippians, will you? Not enough to be in the apocalypse. That's to come. Let's look at what's already come. Philippians chapter 2. Page 790 in your pew Bible, Philippians chapter 2. End with me here. Considered the oldest Christian hymn extant. I believe that these words were actually a hymn that had been, that were, these words were sung as a hymn in their praise services long ago. Philippians chapter 2, pick it up in verse 5. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, 
did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but he made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a slave. That's how the Greek reads, of a slave. And coming in the likeness of men and women and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. It's an old hymn. They used to sing those words. No humbler. No humbler. No one humbler. There's a magazine that still goes out today. It's a wonderful magazine. If you can subscribe to it, be sure and do as Karen and I do. It's called Signs of the Times. It's been around for a long time. 110 years ago, this very month, on June 9, 110 years ago, these words appeared in Signs magazine. I'll put them on the screen for you. What a sight was this for heaven to look upon. Christ! who knew not the least taint of sin or defilement, took our nature in its deteriorated condition. This was humiliation greater than finite man or woman could possibly comprehend. God was manifest in the flesh. God humbled Himself. What a subject for thought, for deep, earnest contemplation. Can you believe that? God humbled Himself. No acquired situational narcissism with this God. The only protocol he embraces is the protocol not of a king, not of a pope, but of a slave. That's all he understands is how to be a slave. I mean, can you think of anyone in the universe who is more humble than this God? Come on, tell me. Call the name out. You name her for me. Name her. Tell me who his name is. Who is more humble that you've ever met than this God? Give me one name. You cannot name a name. I'll leave you here forever and you'll not come up with a name. There is no one humbler. No God humbler in this universe. Then try to think. I mean, can you think of anybody you would rather be more like than this God? I mean, wouldn't you like to be like Him? You and I have had it backwards. We thought that to exert yourself and to show your authority around this place, you've got to have a little bit of power. You've got to push. You've got to push. It's the other way around. we got it all. The devil has infected us all. we got it backwards. It's the other way around. If you have power, you're a slave. You serve. If you have power, you give it up. We've been wrong. For an entire race, we've been wrong. That's why he came. So guys, I've got to tell you, the kingdom, the kingdom is different. Apparently, we can become as humble as the Lord Jesus. Because you know why? You know what? That's, that's precisely why, I put this, why Paul put this here. Look at this. Go up to verse 3. Here, here's the point Paul's making when he launches into this hymn. Verse 3. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility... In humility of mind, let each esteem others better than himself, better than herself. Let each one of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Now, let this mind, therefore, be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus. You want to be humble? You've got to have Jesus' mind. Just ask for His mind. You can be as humble as Jesus, but you have to have His mind. You've got to have His heart. Let this mind be in you. Apparently, the very contemplation of the humility of Jesus begins to have an effect on me and have an effect on you. Oh, mercy. Look at this. Desire of Ages. Put it on the screen for you. Looking upon the crucified Redeemer, 
we more fully comprehend the magnitude and the meaning of the sacrifice made by the majesty of heaven. The plan of salvation is glorified before us. And the thought of Calvary, I love this, the thought of Calvary awakens living and sacred emotions in our hearts. Praise to God and the Lamb, just as we were singing just a moment ago. Praise to God and the Lamb will be in our hearts and on our lips. And now here's this line. This line is so potent for me because i got to struggle with the subject that we've been dealing with in this short series. I struggle with it. This line is so potent for me that I have written this line on the page that tells the story in Matthew of, the, of Calvary. I've written this line down. Isn't this amazing? Take a look at it on the screen. Pride and self-worship cannot flourish in the soul that keeps fresh in memory the scenes of Calvary. I mean, I memorized it because I read it every day. Pride and self-worship cannot flourish in the soul that keeps fresh in memory the scenes of Calvary. Ladies and gentlemen, we have gathered here today to take a towel and some bread and a cup, the great emblems of Calvary, so that pride and self-worship may not flourish today. I don't know how it works, but apparently... Well, it's kind of like when you walk into a room... Hey, here's here's a question for you. When you walk into a room, a dark room, like the barn a moment ago, when you walk into a dark room and you turn on, you hit the switch and the light goes on. Where does the darkness go? Where does it go? Does it go up to a little corner in the universe where it hides and waits to come back? But of course not. It simply ceases to exist. When you step up to Calvary and the switch is hit and the resplendent glory of that sacrifice shines on your heart, where does your pride and self-worship go? You can't be proud at that moment. It is humanly impossible because it's gone. You're at the foot of the cross. Do you understand? When we go to the cross, the light, the floodlight of divine humility shines on us and our pride and self-worship, gone. Yeah, but Dwight, what about tomorrow? Oh, you're right, tomorrow. Because it'll be fine today, but what about tomorrow? And the next day, and the next day, and the next day. Ah, that's why we've got to go to the cross every day. I wish you'd join me every morning, wherever you live, wherever you live on this planet right now, I wish you would join me every morning and beginning your day reading the story of Calvary. Then you and I can go to where the light goes and pride and self worth gone. They cannot exist for the glory of divine humility at Calvary shines on us. Go with me every day. You got a Bible, don't you? Open your Bible every day as you begin it with the story of Calvary. I don't care where else you worship, just start with Calvary. Start at the cross. Hit the switch. Pride and self-worship cannot flourish in the soul that keeps fresh in memory the scenes of Calvary. No God humbler than the one on the cross. You know why? For God is the most humble person who has ever lived. And I, for one, want to be just like Him. Just like Jesus. Don't you? I mean, come on. Don't you? Of course. Oh, God, hit the switch. Shine the light. The resplendent glory of the most humble person in the universe. Shine it at the cross. That is the ultimate humiliation. Shine it at Calvary. And destroy the pride and self-worship deep within us. Do it today and tomorrow and the next day and the next day and the next day.
until that great white throne judgment. And we, by the grace of Jesus, shall be in that circle about him. Oh God, do it, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.